0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Dobbylicious Podcast. I'm Michael John, and I'll be sharing some personal anecdotes while going through a chapter of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and adding an infusion of information from outside the books. Today's episode is titled Fifty Shades of Snape, as we go through chapter 8, The Potions Master. And before we get started, I only really have one housekeeping notification, which is to say thanks to everyone who's been listening. It's really exciting for me to see that people from around the world who I actually don't know are tuning into the podcast and following each episode. So in order to keep the quality of the content entertaining for you guys, I've decided to release each episode on a fortnightly basis. So that's every other weekend. Apart from that, if you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend because it really helps spread the news. And without further ado, let's get into it. So the chapter begins with a description of Harry receiving a lot of attention. And it says, quote, Whispers followed Harry from the moment he left his dormitory. And I was trying to think of whether any celebrities could associate with this. But I realised that Harry is actually more than a celebrity. He unknowingly freed the wizarding world from evil, essentially. So in that sense, he's kind of like a Nelson Mandela who was the face of liberating South Africa from apartheid, or a Winston Churchill, who's iconic in the fight against Hitler, except Harry's 11 years old. So I'm kind of imagining a cross between the reverence towards Nelson Mandela and the face of Justin Bieber, something along those lines. And we hear about Harry getting used to life in Hogwarts, which Joe Rowling makes interesting and fun, because there are some staircases which lead to different places, depending on what day of the week it is. And some of the staircases have a vanishing step or the doors need to be tickled to open or there are walls which are pretending to be doors. But I also thought this is like when you have one of those nightmares about your first day at work or something where you're trying to get to an important meeting and you need to tickle the door to open it which turns out to be a wall so you run down a staircase which has now changed the place that it takes you to. It sounds like one of those dreams except it's real for Harry, and I suppose at least he has friends to navigate through this with. And I couldn't help but think this would be a good place to insert a story about my first day somewhere where I got lost or things went wrong, Or, but I can't actually remember having anything other than a nervous first day perhaps, but nothing actually going dramatically wrong. So if anyone does have a story which they think would be well inserted at this point in the podcast, please let me know and we can put it in a future episode. Also, it says that Harry was sure the coats of armour could walk, which actually reminded me. On one occasion, there was a social event at my local rowing club, and they'd run out of beer, so they needed to fit a new keg, and they asked me if I'd go to a local pub where the owner was a member of the rowing club, and he'd agreed to show someone how to fit a keg, so they wanted me to learn how to do it, bring the knowledge back, and fit a new one. And that sounded quite interesting to me. So I went to this pub where they took me down to the basement where they basically had an underground plumbing network of pipes for transporting beer. And here's where the story links in with Harry Potter. There was a full medieval coat of armor in the basement of this pub. I'm, well, I'm not actually sure how old it was, but I thought it was so random. So I asked, you know, why is there a knight in shining armor down here? And they said they'd had to move it down to the basement because people kept getting drunk in the pub and trying to steal parts of the armor. So it's not just in Harry Potter where the coats of armour move, so to speak. And on the plus side, I learned how to change a beer keg. Anyway, so one character who contributes to the nightmarish situation of initially adjusting to the quirks of Hogwarts is Peeves the Poltergeist, who terrorises the students in various ways, as we all know, like dropping waste paper baskets on the students' heads or sneaking up behind them, invisible, grabbing their nose and screeching, Got your conk!" And I just thought, got your conk." Conk means nose for any non-UK listeners wondering, although that's probably self-explanatory. And I read online that Peeves has been at Hogwarts since the four founders set up the school. So that's since the 10th century. So Peeves has had literally 1,000 years of pranking students. And all he can think of is, got your conk. I mean, that's what parents do to five-year-olds. I just feel that Peeves could up his game a bit. Although what I do like about Peeves is that it says online that he respects some special students such as the Weasley Twins, who we all know and love. But anyway, there's some quite interesting stuff in the Joe Rowling archives about Peeves. Apparently the word poltergeist is German in origin and roughly translates to noisy ghost, and Peeves is so named because he's been the pet peeve of Hogwarts caretakers like Filch and is, quote, the most notorious poltergeist in British history. Apparently, in 1876, the Hogwarts caretaker Rancorous Carp set an elaborate trap baited with weapons and an enchanted bell jar to catch Peeves, but Peeves managed to break through the bell jar and was then armed with weapons, so this caused the castle to be evacuated. And after a three-day standoff, the headmistress at the time, Euphraxia Mole, signed a contract which allowed Peeves extra privileges, like a once-weekly swim in the boys' toilets and a custom-made hat from Madame Bonabille of Paris. And despite these extra privileges, Peeves apparently does respect the teacher's lessons, and he's obviously afraid of the bloody Baron, the Slytherin Ghost, as we find out in the books. So then we get introduced to Filch and Mrs Norris, and I just had one thought about this, which is, imagine if Filch rewarded good behaviour instead of bringing so much negativity around pursuing bad behaviour. It's easy for me to say because I don't have to deal with Peeves, but still... I'm sure Filch could have struck up a deal with the Hogwarts kitchen or something to get some little cakes or cookies to students who were on the straight and narrow, rewarding their good behaviour, or maybe levitating hot drinks out to them in the ground on a cold day or something like that. So we also learn about the lessons Harry's going to start to take, and apparently, in Joe Rowling's original note, she named them herbalism, instead of herbology, beasts presumably instead of Care of Magical Creatures, although that doesn't actually start until the second year at Hogwarts. And Transfiguration was called Transfiguration slash Metamorphosis. And we get some descriptions of some of the teachers, I think the most amusing of which must be Professor Flitwick, who, when reading Harry Potter's name from the register, quote, gave an excited squeak and toppled out of sight. And then in Quirrell's class, we hear that he's a bit of a flop who bumbles about and everyone leaves deeply unimpressed with his defense against the dark arts capabilities, although it is noticed that Quirrell's turban smells funny. Dun-dun-dun. So Harry goes to breakfast at the end of the week, and Hedwig flies in with a letter from Hagrid. Now, the letter, as written in the books, contains no spelling mistakes, unlike the cake in the movie which Hagrid gives to Harry on his 11th birthday, which makes Hagrid look like a buffoon who can't spell happy birthday. In this scene, we just hear that Hagrid has messy handwriting, not that he has any issues with spelling. Also, fun fact, Hedwig was apparently played by three different owls in the movies called Gizmo, Ook and Sprout, according to the Potterhead's uh, Twitter feed, at least. And here's the thing with the owls delivering letters. According to what Joe Rowling wrote online, they don't need an address, and the process of how they find the people they're meant to deliver letters to is mysterious even to the people who train them. So when the Ministry of Magic, for example, is looking for Sirius Black in later books, I wonder why they can't just use an owl. But maybe then there's something about the person not wanting to be found, meaning the owl can't find them. I don't know how it works, but... Anyway, so then the moment when Harry has double potions with Severus Snape arrives... And Joe Rowling has actually tweeted in the past saying that the name Severus comes from a street sign near where she was living in Clapham. So that street sign must now officially be a decent piece of Harry Potter memorabilia. But don't get any ideas, people. So Snape's classroom is in the dungeons and is described as cold and creepy, as well as having pickled animals floating in glass jars all, over, all around the walls. And that actually reminded me of the anatomy museum at a university I used to study at, which had all kinds of stuff uh, spread over three floors. So you might be studying next to the section of a lung or a collection of faces with gunshot wounds. No joke. And they actually had, and I swear this is true, the mummified body of a Mr. Alan Billis, who died in 2011 and was the subject of a documentary called Mummifying Alan, Egypt's Last Secret. I mean, what are you even supposed to say about that? Bloody hell, Alan. But I remember being there for Christmas quizzes and things and people being like, hey, don't leave your drinks on the mummy. And the other thing that was kind of funny about this anatomy museum is that they had these four models of human bodies, which were arranged in a square and they were modeled so you could see their internal anatomy. I think that's probably the least gross way of putting it. But anyway, there are these four bodies kind of cut in half, arranged in a square. And then at Christmas, they'd put a big Christmas tree in the middle of these cut open bodies. Which I always found quite funny, but I suppose they have to get the Christmas vibes in, but... So anyway, Harry is in the potions classroom, and in the book it says that by the end of this lesson, Harry knew that Snape hated him. And I just thought, look, Harry hasn't done anything to get into Snape's bad books. And in general, if someone is overly negative towards someone else for no apparent reason... It's just an indication that they have some kind of problem themselves. And I think it's fair to say that Snape has problems. So you have to feel for the students who are on the end of those issues. Snape is obviously a character who divides opinion because he did both amazing things in the book as well as awful things. So there's solid evidence for both sides of the argument about whether he's a good or a bad person. But for me, he'll be perpetually in this grey area. So Snape hates Harry because Harry reminds Snape of his childhood bully, James Potter, who's Harry's dad. And when going through Snape's memories in Book 7, The Deathly Hallows, we see a conversation between Snape and Dumbledore where Snape says that Harry is, quote, arrogant as his father, and Dumbledore says, you see what you expect to see, Severus. So I thought it was interesting that Snape's love for Lily, Harry's mum, although driving him to do so much for good, doesn't push his unresolved issues with James Potter to one side to allow him to actually be nice to Harry. Although we do find out later in the books that Snape wanted Dumbledore to save Lily and didn't really care about Harry or his dad. So maybe that's why Snape still has feelings of bitterness towards Harry because he kind of has the remnants of that person who only cared about Lily and not wholeheartedly about people who she cared about. But on a lighter note, Snape is actually the person who introduces Harry to Expelliarmus during the dueling club in uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which, obviously, Harry ultimately uses to kill Voldemort. So the first potions lesson begins, and if you need a sign of how attached Snape could have been to Lily, just listen to how he talks about a pot. Snape, it says, has the gift of keeping a class quiet and speaks in barely more than a whisper, which seems a little bit strange, but anyway. Then he says... I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes. And look, I think it's great that Snape is enthusiastic about his subject, in his concealed sort of way. But he sounds like he's talking about that cauldron with an unusual level of devotion, so I can imagine his level of devotion would be even greater when it comes to someone he actually likes. So then, what I thought was a really interesting aspect of this scene is that Snape uses the symbolism of flowers which was apparently prevalent in Victorian times. So flowers represented different feelings or ideas which you could express to someone by giving them that, that specific flower. So Snape puts Harry on the spot and asks him, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? And it turns out that what on the surface seems like Snape bullying Harry actually contains multiple allusions about Lily, Harry's mum. Because Asphodel is a type of lily and it means remembered beyond the tomb or my regrets follow you to the grave. And wormwood is associated with regret. So in this line, Snape is conveying that he carries Lily's memory with him as well as regrets because he ultimately caused Voldemort to seek her out. And then a few lines later, Snape asks, What's the difference, Potter, between monkshood and wolfsbane? And apparently, Monkshood is associated with chivalry, whereas Wolfsbane can mean misanthropy, which is a kind of disdain. So on WizardingWorld.com, it says that this, in this line, Snape could be referring to Lily's heroic actions in sacrificing herself for Harry compared to his own distrustful nature. And I think this situation also reflects Snape's subtle nature and his ability to hide his emotions because he's basically talking to Lily's son about the subject which causes him the most pain in his life while coming across like he's bullying Harry. But something I love in this scene is that Hermione is so eager to answer Snape's questions to Harry that she actually stands up to raise her hand higher in the air. She is so keen. And I don't know if that's supposed to make Hermione seem more annoying, but for me, I always thought it was brilliant. And although, unfortunately, I think there is a cultural tendency, at least in the UK, for people to frown upon being too keen about something, which doesn't really make sense to me. So if there's anyone listening who's really keen about something, just keep it Dobbylicious and be keen. I remember once that someone told me I was being keen when I was at a rowing training camp, and it was pretty intense. The schedule was basically wake up at 5 in the morning, be in a rowing boat on the water by 6 in the morning, row for two hours, have breakfast, be back on the water at 10.30, row, have lunch, be back on the water at 3 p.m., row and then recover for the rest of the evening. So it was full on, and I went to ask one of the coaches for some advice on rowing technique, and one of the guys said to me afterwards that I was being a bit keen. And I just said, we're rowing for six hours a day. I think it's safe to say everyone's pretty keen. So I totally support Hermione's keenness, in this scene at least. And I just love the fact that Hermione's priority here is to do her best rather than being concerned about being cool. So... Putting Snape and Harry's relationship aside, I think Snape basically has no excuse for being such a so-and-so towards Neville Longbottom. I mean, I was trying to think, why is he so horrible to Neville? And maybe there's this kind of hidden regret that because Voldemort went after Harry, Lily died, whereas if he had gone after Neville, Neville's parents would have died. But how can you rationalise that? That would mean that Snape is taking things out on Neville because Neville didn't get murdered. I mean, this is the thing with Snape. Even if you love him or hate him, I think everyone can agree that Snape has issues which he needs to work through. And I would say that although this scene focuses on Harry's experience, Neville actually had a worse time in his first potions class because Neville has an accident where he's drenched in a potion which causes angry red boils to spring up on his hands. So he's in pain and he's being treated horribly by Snape, so it's no surprise that Snape becomes Neville's worst fear. But fortunately for Harry, he has an invitation for tea with Hagrid, so he heads there after potions and he can vent. This seemed very normal to me, but then I thought maybe if it was an American novel they'd be meeting Hagrid for some fizzy pop or something. But obviously it's great if Hagrid to check in on Harry, so Harry feels like he has a support network and... There is research from some psychologists showing that if you feel you have a strong social support network, obviously you're more likely to be happy. And we find out that Hagrid lives in a kind of wooden studio, kitchenette type affair with a boarhound called Fang. And I'm surprised Dumbledore doesn't just magically expand the interior of Hagrid's hut. I mean, how hard would that be? But anyway, Harry vents about Snape, and when Hagrid tells Harry that Snape doesn't hate him... He doesn't meet Harry's eyes, which suggests that Hagrid knows something, so I reckon Hagrid knows that Snape and James didn't get on. And Hagrid also mentions that he spends half his life chasing the Weasley twins away from the Forbidden Forest, so I wonder what they got up to? Joe Rowling must know, and I would definitely be curious to find out more. And the chapter ends with Harry finding out that Gringotts was burgled the same day he and Hagrid had emptied vault 713, so the plot thickens there. And Hagrid sends Harry and Ron back to Hogwarts with rock cakes, which just reminds me of some of my relatives, because you'll just always end up with food. It doesn't matter what the occasion is. I mean, it's one of those situations where you might have lunch and then go over to their house. And because it's like plus minus two hours of lunchtime, they will try and give you lunch again. So yeah, I don't know. It's like some kind of family food bank or something. And we've reached the end of the chapter, which brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening, maybe enjoyed some of the insights about Snape or the personal anecdotes. New episodes are released fortnightly, so the next one will be coming out the weekend after next. If you want a notification about it, please feel free to subscribe. Otherwise, until next time, don't forget to keep it Dobbylicious.